All right. Hello and welcome to my podcast, uh, The Nature of Nature in New England Writing, which is probably a very on-the-nose title, but it was the best I could come up with on the fly. Um, You can kind of guess from it what I plan to talk about, I suppose. Uh, I want to discuss sort of the depiction of nature and the environment in general in the different writings we've seen uh, from the authors we've we've, uh, gone through in in our class. Um, but I'm also planning to maybe look into some different works that either the same authors have done or maybe some uh, similar authors if I can get around to that. Um, so uh, an overview is that I am an environmental studies student, uh, which I've talked about before in one of the videos I did for class. Um, and that means that I've, I've learned to sort of analyze how the environment is being um, it, how it's being portrayed in various pieces of of media and like so literature in more modern things like movies, television, uh, commercials, songs, um, and I've also learned how important it is. You get the idea of what people really feel towards the environment, how they view it what it means to them, like the value they attach to it or the lack lack of value even. Um, and I've always found it fascinating because it really, it really does tell you a lot, not just about the time period that people are living in, but sort of the, the very like foundation of, of society to us, to an extent, uh, is it, as in like, does that, does that in society extend even to, to the environment? Do people care? Do people want to care? Is it seen as separate? Is it seen as a cohesive unit, um, of humanity? And I've noticed a lot of people tend to separate it. It's a separate sphere. It, it is very much distinct from urban life, uh, suburban life, whatever you want to say. Um, and I just, I again, I, I just find that completely fascinating to, to be able to, to explore that in different uh, forms of media. Uh, and in particular, obviously, because we're a literature course, I'll be talking about literature and, and how different authors have been able to incorporate the natural world into their writing and what it means for them to do so. Um, the writer I was going to focus on for this week is uh, Sarah Orne Jewett, which we talked about what, two weeks ago. Um, and as you know, she's a regional writer. From she was born in um, South Berwick, Maine, uh, where she then lived for the majority of her life, if not all of it. Uh, and I, for her, uh, she wrote about small town life and uh, in, in Maine and of New England in general, um, but specifically for people in Maine. And uh, that was why she was so important as a writer, and this was why she she gained acclaim for her writing because she very much captured the the daily lives of these people and and what mattered to them really. Um, uh, you can probably guess the the work I wanted to talk about uh, primarily is a white heron. Um, but in addition to that, I'm going to talk about a poem that she she has called A Caged Bird, which I uh, discovered when I was looking through her Poetry Foundation information. Um, and also, it's the sort of understated link I think she has to transcendentalism, you know, the, the philosophy that's mostly associated with Ralph Waldo Emerson and, and Henry David Thoreau. Um, and there's also a link I want to talk about 
which comes from my interest in environmental history, uh, which is the Audubon Society uh, that originally was tasked with, with uh, the conservation of, of bird species in America. Um, uh, but moving on to a white heron in particular, um, this, this was, I talked about this in a blog post, uh, if anybody clicked on that. Um, and I talked about, uh, the connection between women and nature specifically, uh, and how you can view, uh, Jewett's white heron as a sort of empowering feminist outlook on nature and women. Um, instead of the, the, the general idea that people have of, of women being soft and delicate and easily, um, corrupted as people then view nature, um, I wanted to talk about specifically that that connection that Sylvia, the main character, has to nature. Um, it's 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 a reflection of her innocence and her purity. Um, and as Jewett talks about, uh, or as you can infer from what Jewett's saying, that it's also a reflection of her naivety, um, because the rural environment that she's in, in the woods and, and isolated from like the outside world is, is limited. It's limited for her knowledge. It's limited for her perception of the world. Um, and I'll get more into that when I talk about, uh, my perceived connection with her and transcendentalism. Um, but so the, the environment for Jewett in this story is, is important in the way that it's important to Sylvia. It's something that is a sim. It's symbolic of of who she is as a person and her womanhood, her femininity, but not as a detriment. It's a. It's it's her in her innocence and everything that she wants to protect uh, from this outsider, this man who's coming in to hunt the birds uh, in the woods and other animals that she sees. And it's just interesting to, to, to see that Sylvia herself is what protects her innocence. And well, she protects the, the forest, the white heron, and by extension, she's protecting her innocence. Because interestingly enough, I was uh, looking into um, animal symbolism, which I, I always look into that when I'm reading, if a specific animal is being used for a specific reason, or if it's maybe just something the author had picked up and wanted to use, or it was what came to mind while they were doing it. Um, herons, from my understanding, are already sort of symbolic with this idea of like peace and tranquility, um, which makes them a great uh, thing for this story because ultimately that is what Sylvia is protecting, her own peace and tranquility. And um, the fact that it's a white heron, white is so often attributed to innocence and purity and um, and a lack of corruption, so to speak. And so this white heron is, in reality, I think, mostly connected to Sylvia. It's it's Sylvia as a child, as a young woman, um, and she's protecting that, and then therefore herself from the man looking to to car to harm and kill this bird, and paraded around as a trophy. Um, and I think that is definitely Jewett saying or making a statement on women in this time period. Uh, you could even say it's still 
uh, a fair assessment of how women are perceived today. Um, so I wanted to talk, I also wanted to talk about this poem that I found called A Caged Bird, and it's, it's a aesthetically pleasing poem, because again, I'm not a poem person generally. Um, I do like, I like the flow of the poem, I like the like the imagery that she, she uses. Um, but the name caught my eye, because when I think of nature, I don't just think of the landscape. It's not just the actual natural environment, the trees, the, 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 so the, the earth, the soil, and such, it's the animals living in it. And so generally, if I ever see a person being compared uh, to an animal or a flower or some such, it's, um, it's another way for me to connect how this person understands the environment. Um, it's a way for, for people to further explore what they what they understand what they value what they what they see in the world as worth protecting and everything like that um and i thought a caged bird was interesting just from the title alone and then when i got into the story and i understood that the caged bird is very much representing either jewett herself or a woman in general um because i've it's 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 a metaphor that gets used i think fairly often um, not just in famous works, but just as an everyday sort of uh, a tra like a trapped bird is very representative of people, like often minorities who are stuck by circumstance, stuck by their gender, their race, family circumstances, uh, society at large. Um, and I, I immediately went to Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, which obviously is a very different story, a very different um, tone from what I think Jewett was going for with her poem, uh, especially because Maya Angelou's is very much based in her race, and Jewett's at least was based more in her, her role as a woman. Um, but in a caged bird, it's a canary, which makes sense because that's often uh, a bird depicted as being in a cage and trapped in a house because it's it's meant to sing and brighten the mood and they're known for being joyful and everything. Um, but this canary is uh, deliberately referred to as female. Uh, it's her and she are used to talk about the bird. Um, it, so it's I, you see a direct comparison to the narrator who is describing what this bird is going through and then offering up her own plight um, that she sees as being connected to the birds trapped in this cage, uh, trying to make it worthwhile with the few possessions that it has, um, very much dreaming of, of greater things beyond the, the window uh, it can see out of in its cage. or the window a woman will be able to see from her own house. Um, and as you see in a lot of other Jewish works, it's this emphasis sort of on expanding one's own horizons because she she makes a point to say that the bird is of dreaming of, of better things, dreaming of a, a wider world in which it could inhabit. Um, and it's that comparison that women would have, like, because they're they're trapped in the domestic sphere, sort of. Um, their duties are wife and motherhood, and that's sort of where it ends for them. Because in this time period, we see a lot of we've seen a lot of women writers being 
uh, being described as as abnormal. This isn't something. Literary women are not desirable. Um, and I thought, like the the compare, like a bird comparison makes a lot of sense uh, to 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 draw on that. Um, and it, the poem itself is just very. Um, I wouldn't say sad necessarily. I also wouldn't say hopeful because I think it's a very, I think it was a sort of bleary outlook on, dreary outlook, I should say, on uh, a woman's role in the, the late 1800s. Um, also, I just, I would like to say on that one, um, it's just the association of, of, of something from nature, so a bird being brought into an environment it would not thrive in is an interesting one for me as well. Um, but moving on, because I'm, it's, honestly, it took longer than I really thought it would. <laughs> so I said Jewett, to me at least, has a distinct connection to transcendentalism. Um, in our New England Local Color Literature book, it talks a lot about uh, how Jewett sort of viewed the, the rural areas, but I, I liken that to meaning like more wooded areas, like where there's less people and less urbanization and everything, uh, where the natural world is more prevalent. Uh, she sees it as sort of almost supernatural, um, but it, it, at least in a place that's central to like to uh, furthering a person's spirituality. Uh, you are you are closer to the spiritual world here than you are anywhere else. Uh, maybe due to the isolation, maybe due to being so close to nature itself and being able to exist in this realm that isn't scarred by um, mortal humanity um like that physical representation of humanity um that we see in, like in an urban environment uh Jewett's not a transcendentalist i just i would like to make that clear that i do not in any way think she is a transcendentalist um i have a rough understanding of transcendentalism from what i know of waldo um and thoreau ralph waldo Everson. oh god <laughs> Um, but there was something that I, there's a connection between them that I just, I wanted to, I wanted to talk about a little bit in that Emerson and Thoreau both view nature as an escape, um, and a place where one can re sort of reach their full potential spiritually, um, create creatively, and that isolation for them is a benefit more than anything else, um. Being, a, being in touch with the natural world can make you more in touch with yourself, make you more in touch with your spirituality. Um, and Jewett sees that. I think I think very clearly you can see that Jewett has that understanding, that like innate understanding that that in a natural environment you can be truer to yourself, sort of, um, or at least more spiritually inclined. But the difference from what I see of these two is Jewett not only understands the benefits, but also the detriments. 
um, which I, I talked a little bit about with the white heron and in the uh, that isolation can be damaging as well because Jewett is very Jewett is very interested in that that expanding of one's own horizons and I think specifically for women she was interested in that because women were so limited uh, throughout history they've been limited they've been denied places in uh, academic standing they've been denied places in in different work environments um, they haven't they weren't allowed to have these things. They weren't, uh, it wasn't seen as their right. It wasn't seen as something they needed uh, or that they should even want. And so for Jewett, I, I think she definitely sees the, the benefit of living in a more diverse area where people can expose you to new things. Um, and it's not to say that her understanding of nature is, is that it is, primitive and unnecessary because obviously she doesn't she doesn't think like that right she very much sees the value in nature she sees uh why it's important for people to spend time there um and sort of what it can do for you if you're if you're lost and looking for a perp like looking for uh guidance for yourself um but I just I like the idea that the, the I think the biggest thing separating her from the natural part of transcendentalism, because as a whole, the philosophy is is something I think she probably agreed with in part, but not completely. Um, but the natural aspects of it. Where she's she just, I think, would would argue that isolating yourself in the, in the woods as um as Emerson and Thoreau both talk about is is worth the risk, but also something that should maybe be limited. Um, all right, as a last point, I'm bringing up the Audubon Society, um, which I bring up primarily because uh, when I was learning about like environmental, like the history of environmental movements in the United States, um, what caught my attention early on was how much women were involved in it and the the reasoning behind women's involvement in the environment um again another in another blog post actually i've talked about uh the concept of republican motherhood which is something that came out of the second great awakening uh, that religious revival in the u.s uh towards the end of this uh, end of the 18th century and then into the 19th century um wherein it was it was sort of decided that women had moral superiority uh that they should be entrusted to impart their value like the values pri uh prioritized by the so the current society onto their children and that it was her job to make sure they grew up into good people good men good women um religiously morally however you want to slice it with that one uh but that concept was something that women used to find places for themselves um, outside of the home, even though that's not really what Republican motherhood was intended for. It was very much to keep women as as mothers uh, and that this was where their their role was. Um, but a lot of women used that sense of moral superiority that was imparted on them by men of the time, but they took pride in it and they wanted to explore um ways in which they could help because it was seen as their duty to do so uh their communities 
their their nation even if you want to go that far uh, a lot of um social movements crop up in the in the 19th century and a lot of them have women participants um women who are very much active members of these um and it, a lot of environmental groups get it it get going in this era um or in the case of something like the Audubon Society afterwards, but hinging, I think, on the values that were set in place in the early 19th century. Uh, and something like the Audubon Society, which it's formed earlier on, but a national society, like there, because there are societies across several states by this point, um, but in 1896, a national society is formed. Um, by Harriet Hemingway, and I think her name is Mina B. Hall. Uh, it could be Mina or M Mina, perhaps. Uh, the spelling confuses me. Um, but they create this national foundation, and it's directly in response to um, the millinery trade, which I knew this was the hat making trade, but I just didn't know what it was called. But um, there is a public outrage over the the destruction of a few waterfowl species of birds uh, because they're they're getting killed specifically for their feathers and the feathers are then being used to make these ornate um these ornate hats for women uh that they would wear for special occasions um my understanding is like something like church or weddings or high society events um but these women come together because they find it ridiculous that these these beautiful natural birds are being killed for for ornamental reasons, um, for vanity. Um, uh, and I just thought it was interesting. It's an interesting connection because it was what I was thinking about when I was reading A White Heron. This, um, this like, because there's the, the young man, the young stranger who comes in um, toting a gun, ready to just kill as many birds as he likes, so he can uh, show them off as trophies, I suppose, uh, get them stuffed, mount them on walls. They're, I mean, he's not using them for the millinery trade, but the same sort of idea of, of, of an ornamental keepsake um, from a living creature, That's that was that tie-in for me while I was reading A White Heron. Uh, and I, I just thought it was so interesting, especially because the Audubon Society um, specifically was doing this for waterfowl, which a heron is a waterfowl, uh, a, a waiter, I believe they're specifically called. Um, so that, that connection struck me uh, pretty heavily while I was reading. And it has nothing to do with Jewett, because I, as far as I can tell, Jewett was not a part of any of these kind of societies, and I don't know what her care was towards the environment. Um, if she saw it as something that needed to be protected, if she saw it as something that um, was something so someone should go out of their way, I suppose, to protect uh, against maybe even the idea of industrialization, uh, which by that point in the U.S. had kicked off in full swing uh, for years, for a few decades actually. Uh, and I I was reading something that you can kind of make the case in a white heron that there's that Jewett is uh, advocating against industrialization. I don't think that was her point while writing it. I could be wrong, but I think uh, for her, her stories are so character-driven. 
the setting of it is is important, obviously, but it's still just a backdrop to the characters themselves and even the connection between Sylvia and the white heron and the environment she's in. Uh, it all boils back down to Sylvia specifically. It's not about it's not about the environment. The environment plays a role. It has a purpose. Um, and again, Jua definitely sees the the value in the environment as serving as a spiritual conductor or uh, an escape almost from the perils of urban life. Um, but I do not I do not think this is really her call against industrialization. Uh, especially as she's coming from a, a small town in Maine. Um, not that that wasn't a problem in Maine, I just don't see it as, as a particular problem of hers, especially in this era, because uh, environmentalism is kicking off in this time period, in like the late 1800s, but it's not fully realized until by the majority of the population, and by that specifically, I mean white people, <laughs> for a few decades. Um, but yeah, that's that's the connection I had. Um, it's interesting to me. It, I I can't guarantee it's interesting to anyone else. Um, but yeah, so as a wrap up, uh, Jewett, Transcendentalism, and the Audubon Society. Uh, probably relatively unconnected in real in reality, but to me, I could see. Uh, where one might draw connections between these things. Um, next week, I'll be hopefully uh, going into a few Native American writers from our anthology book, um, such as Miku Paul and Molly Spotted Elk, um, because uh, several of their poems are beautifully written, for one, and uh, explore the depth of the emotional and cultural attachment of Native Americans uh, to their environment, to the natural world. And I definitely want to compare that to the view of non-Natives, of, of, of white people. Um, so hopefully that'll be my that'll be my next recording and then I will have to figure out something for the third one. But uh, all in all, uh, thank you if you listened to this entire thing. I apologize for almost taking a half an hour of your time. Um, but I enjoyed getting to talk about this and getting to uh, go through my own interests in relation to this class. So, see you next time. <laughs>